Father, thank you for the variety of ways you allow us to express our worship and our praise to you. The playing of musical, musical instruments uh, in beauty as a gift to you, to our prayers, to our songs, and now to our attention to your word. May it be pleasing to you, and may you work through it. Amen. The drift. The drift is a way of describing a movement of a person or a group of people from one place to another, but it happens so slowly and seemingly unintentionally that one barely perceives that they have moved so much from one place to the next. If you're on the ocean and you turn the motor off on your boat and you simply drift with the wind or with the current, it's amazing how far you can move in such a short amount of time. Israel had drifted. And they had gone a long way. And in so many ways we see that as a continual reoccurring theme of the Old Testament. God enters into a series of covenants or promises, a relationship with this people Israel. He is their God and they are his people. And as such, he formed them and shaped them and cared for them and provided for them. And at times, this relationship was marked by God's people also being faithful back to him. But there were plenty of times when they were not. Sometimes they outwardly rebelled. Other times, they drifted. And they became a people that they never really thought they would become. And in many ways, this might mirror some of our relationships with God. And after all, God is great among us. He has changed us. He has provided for us. He has forgiven us. But sometimes we drift. <laughs> sometimes it feels like our relationship with him fades. God's kept up his end of the bargain, but we haven't always kept up ours. And sometimes our spiritual lives begin to feel like that. And so 1 Samuel chapter 12 has something for all of us to learn in this regard. You might recall that Israel was a nation of God, but they wanted a king like all the other nations around them. And this was a sign that they had drifted. God was supposed to be their king, but nevertheless, God gave them a king that they requested, a human king named Saul. And they didn't support him immediately, but upon the difficulty in battle, God allowed the Holy Spirit to rush upon this young king to lead them into battle and to spare them gave him victory. And today, as you grab a Bible and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12, we see really what's a continuation of that story. Because chapter 11 concludes with the people turning back to God and renewing the kingdom. But what does it mean to renew the kingdom? What does it mean to renew your relationship with God, maybe after you've drifted? Well, the prophet Samuel tells us. And in this, we see this important conundrum that arises for the nation of Israel. 
if God is supposed to be their king, but he allows them to have an earthly king, then what is going to become of them? How is God going to treat them going forward? Would he bless the king and the kingdom? Or would he abandon his people, give them over to their king, and let them go on their way? How can they renew the kingdom of God while now having an earthly king? And to answer that question, Samuel speaks to them in what is sometimes referred to as his farewell address. He tells them how to renew the kingdom. And he does so in a speech that looks an awful lot like a legal trial. And you'll catch glimpses of that as we read it. And so turn with me, if you yet to do so, to 1 Samuel chapter 12, and I'll start reading at verse 1. It says this, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Or whom have I oppressed? Or from, whom's, from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and we have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall serve or reign over us when the Lord your God was king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him, 
and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see the great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. And so Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet you do not turn aside from, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all of your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Who is responsible for the state that Israel finds themselves in. Samuel leads them through this long speech in the form of a trial to answer that very question. Who is responsible? And what's going to happen as a result? And he begins by pointing to himself. Before he points the finger at the people of Israel, he points to himself in verses 1 through 5 in a form of self-examination. And he was the de facto leader of Israel. He was the prophet of God before them. Now they're in a tough spot. It's, of course, important to look at what the leader has done. And so he points to three realities. First, he says that he has obeyed the voice of the people, everything they've asked him to do, and that he's given them a king. He didn't want to, it was incredibly distasteful to him because he knew what was going to happen. But you might remember back in chapter 8, the Lord told Samuel to go ahead and obey their voice and give them a king. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And so Samuel obeyed the voice of the people and obeyed the voice of God and gave them a king. There was no charge against him. 
Secondly, he points to the fact that he's walked with them his whole life. Who can forget the story of his mother, Hannah, crying out to God for a child, and God, in his care for her, delivers a child, and she commits him to the Lord, and he serves the Lord with his whole life. And thirdly, Samuel points to the fact that he has given to them generously and never taken from them fraudulently, and he does so through this string of Questions. Whose oxen have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? To whom have I defrauded? To, from whom have I taken a bribe that I might be blind toward them? And of course, the answer is nobody. A godly leader has lasting character. A godly leader is for the people that he leads. A godly leader doesn't drift, even though the people do. Samuel has been that leader. He is not responsible for the trouble that Israel finds himself in. He has been acquitted. <laughs> but the story isn't really about Samuel. And even though leadership is in the immediate foreground of what's happening here, it's not his leadership that's in question. The old way of leadership has served them well. They had a God who was a king and a prophet who spoke for that God and they had heard his voice. And so Samuel continues the speech, and you can almost see the shifting of gaze in the courtroom as he does. It moves away from the prophet himself and onto the people of Israel themselves, and in so, he's helping them to see their guilt by reminding them of how great God has been to them, what he's done for them, and what they have done in return. He's helping them to see their guilt because they don't fully see it themselves. They know in some ways that they've done some things wrong. They know, or they've been told by now at least, that their request for a king has not been a good one. But they still don't feel the significance of it. It's sort of like that friend of yours who went ahead and had the garlic sauce at lunch and knows that it probably wasn't a great idea, but doesn't recognize how bad their breath really is. So you say, hey, go take care of that. Or, or your family member who has the dog that everybody loves but smells a little bit funny. Nobody really likes the smell of this dog, but your friend doesn't quite realize that it's not just the dog that smells. The dog has made their whole house smell. They don't really grasp how bad it really is until somebody says to them in the point of conversation, your house smells like the dog. Samuel is going to help them see how bad it really is. And so look at verses 6 and 7. He says, the Lord is the witness. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds to the, that the Lord has done and performed for you and for your forefathers. Stand still that I may plead with you. In other words, God has seen it all. He has seen the whole history of your people, and yet you're not seeing it. You don't remember. And so I plead with you. I beg with you. Listen and remember what God has done. Let me tell you. Your forefathers cried out to God when they were in Egypt and being oppressed. And God sent Moses and Aaron 
And he delivered them. He walked them through the wilderness to the very promised land in which you live to this day. But your fathers forgot the Lord their God. And as a result, they were attacked by a foreign nation. Not just one, but many foreign nations. And they cried out to God again. And God delivered them again by sending the judges, Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and even Samuel himself. But when the Ammonite ruler, Nahash, came attacking, you didn't trust to call out to God, nor did you trust his leader. You said, we want a king to reign over us. When God provides, his people are grateful for a while and then they forget. They suffer spiritual amnesia. And therefore they drift farther away. And when the people are in trouble on this drift, at first they call out to God for help. The one who's rescued them before, and he does rescue again, but as the amnesia continues, now they're not even calling to him anymore. They're not even seeking for him to deliver them. They seek to provide their own deliverer, their own rescuer, their own savior, their own king. And the words of Samuel come to this stunning climax as he's recounting all the good that God has done to them and all the ways that God has saved them and all the people that God has given into their midst and how great and merciful and powerful God has been to them. And then he says, you've asked for a king. Well, here he is. Behold, the king that you have asked for. He's young. He's tall, he's dark, and he is handsome, fit to be a king. He looks the part, and God has even given him a victory in his first time out in battle. But he's creating a contrast. It's as if Samuel is saying to them, as you consider everything that God has done as you consider his tremendous mercy to you, as you consider his excellent character, as you have considered his long-suffering, as you have considered the fact that he has delivered you and your fathers and your forefathers again and again and again, as you have considered the fact that he's provided for you for your entire history as a people, and he continues to provide for you today. Look at whom you've chosen instead. You had this, but now you've chosen this. You've had the eternal king of heaven, but now you've chosen a temporary king of earth. You had God, but instead you chose Saul. It's not hard to think about how this might apply to us. Because for so many of us, we look through our life and we see our seasons of spiritual amnesia. Maybe some of us are in one right now. 
forgetting the power of God's work in our life, forgetting the feeling of nearness to God, forgetting all the incredible weight of sin and the conviction and sense of guilt and shame that that carries. And then the great relief that happens as we realize that we can have forgiveness of that sin and pardon in Jesus Christ. But as time goes on, the drift, the acuteness of our need fades. We develop a sort of numbness to our own sin. Our perspective is altered. And maybe we don't even cry out to God all that often for help anymore. We now can choose what's best for our own life. You had God and his grace. And now consider the alternative that you've chosen. I wonder what those temptations are for you, those alternatives, those idols. For some of us, it's materialism, material things, the pursuit of having more. For some of us, it's the complete commitment to career advancement. Or maybe it's the constant pursuit of comfort or recreation. Maybe you've made your children your idol by reorienting your entire life around them. Maybe your idol is sex or pornography or self-fulfillment. Self-fulfillment, we think, comes in all kinds of forms. Maybe it's in a different marriage than we're in now or a different set of priorities for our life or maybe even a different master. All of those things look really good on the outside. They look like they will provide what you need in the moment. They look like a tall, dark, young, handsome king. But they pale in comparison to the power of God. A small boy who was described as a shy eight-year-old second grader little owlish spectacles was guilty of committing a crime in, New Jer- in a New Jersey school a number, a number of years ago. It was Valentine's Day and he brought a valentine in to the class. He set it down on the teacher's desk and then immediately he walked down into the basement of the school and set fire to some paper in the boiler room setting the rest of the school on fire. And when the fire commissioner conducted an inquiry, the evidence pointed to the boy And he readily admitted that he had set fire to the entire school. And when he was asked why, he explained with this childish simplicity. In class yesterday, they took away my bubble gum. In effect, the child is saying, I am on the throne of my life, and I want everybody else to bow down before me. I want to rule. When I want anything, I want it. And it is sufficient. That in and of itself is a sufficient reason for me having it. And if I want bubblegum, I am to have it. And if anybody takes it away from me, I have a right to lash out and to destroy anything that stands 
in the way of my whim or my desire. Israel stood guilty. They rejected God as their king. And they didn't fully recognize how wicked their actions were. You know, sometimes you can tell somebody how bad it is to do something or give them the logical reason why something doesn't make sense. But it's one thing to have mental assent to something, but it's another thing to see it and to feel it. And so Samuel knows that these Israelites, and God knows that many of us, and he brings us to this point sometimes where not only does he tell us what we're doing is wrong, but he shows us how severe it really is. And Samuel does that. Samuel shows them with a sign just how significant the power of the one that they've rejected really is. And so he prays to God. He calls down a rainstorm from heaven in the midst of their wheat harvest just to show them in case they hadn't already accepted it in their mind. The rainstorm shows a simple contrast. The thunder crashed and the rain fell in the midst of those harvesting. Saul could never do that. <laughs> but God can do anything. It was only when the people saw their sin from God's perspective that there was hope that they would turn from it. And the fear of God's power that that storm induced opened the door for their repentance. And so that leads to an important truth. How do you renew your relationship with God when you've drifted? Well, firstly, you take account of your sin for what it really is compared to who God really is. And you turn from it and you turn toward him. That's exactly what the Israelites did. Take a look at verse 19. Verse 19, they see the rain, they hear the thunder, they greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And it says, all the people said to Samuel, pray for the servants to your Lord, to the Lord your God, that we may not die. <laughs> for we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And the response of the prophet on behalf of God is absolutely amazing. Look at verse 20. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Do not be afraid? <laughs> How could they not be afraid? They've just now seen and heard and are now feeling the significance of their wickedness. And God just displayed power that only God can display in their midst. How on earth could they not be afraid? How is God not going to just let them have their king and send them on their way and be done with them? 
How is God just going to let us have our idols like he should? (laughs) And all the things we drift into and send us on our way. Well, verse 22 tells us, it says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it was has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. For his name's sake. Why doesn't God just send them on their way? For his name's sake. Why doesn't God send you, who profess to be Christians, but drift away? Why doesn't he just let you go? For his name's sake. God for the reputation of God, redeems sinners. (laughs) For God's promises, he keeps his people close even as they're trying to drift. For God's name, for the consistency of his character and his purposes, he makes grace greater than all of our sins. That's the dynamic of the Christian life. And a call to the people of Israel and the call to you and to me is this. By remembering the great things that the Lord has done for us, we are helped to trust him and serve him. By remembering all of the things that God has done in saving you and drawing you near and growing you. When you're on the drift, how do you renew? You remember. And that helps you to trust and to serve. By remembering God's greatness. This will keep you from forgetting his goodness. (laughs) And by remembering God's power will keep you from forgetting his provision. Even when it feels like he might not be providing. That's really what we're dealing with here. These people forgot who they were dealing with. (laughs) And when they were reminded by the crash of the thunder and the call down of the rain, the light bulb went on. They were dealing with a powerful God. And my friends, when we are on the drift, when you are fading away and you are pursuing the idols in your life, when you're pursuing the spiritual things that you think will provide, when you're experiencing your own version of the tall, dark, and handsome young king, You are forgetting who you're dealing with. (laughs) But remembering God's power will keep you from forgetting his provision. What an incredible reality. That God will not let his divine plans for this people Israel be hijacked, even though Israel is the one hijacking it. (laughs) That God accomplishes his purposes, yes, through our faithfulness, but sometimes God accomplishes his purpose purposes, even when we are faithless. He's sovereign. He will see his purposes through from beginning all the way to the end. His name depends on it. And so what do you do when you're drifting? Well, you recognize your great evil for what it is in comparison to God. But secondly, you also see 
God's greater steadfast love and forgiveness for those who are his people. And by focusing on the second, it allows you to move on from the first, to not go back there, to never go back to those things that were tempting to you because God is greater. His power will keep you from forgetting his provision. And he bids you to come. Jesus says, come, everyone who's weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is a story in which the son begins to reckon with his great evil deeds while at the same time remembering the incredible steadfastness of his father. And he goes home. And the story ends with this great description. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this your brother was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost and is found. And so how do you renew your relationship with God? You recognize your sin for what it is. You focus on or embrace or trust Jesus Christ for your forgiveness as the expression of God's steadfastness to you. And then verse 20 tells us two more things that you do going forward. Number one, it says to serve the Lord with all of your heart says that again in verse 24, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things. <laughs> we could spend a lot of time talking about what those empty things are. I think one of the biggest temptations of our time right now in history is the pursuit of empty things things that look great in the moment, things that provide a temporary pleasure, things that you have infinite access to, and yet at the end, profit you nothing. Some ask the question, if this is what renewing my relationship with God looks like and serving the Lord with all of my heart is what goes forward for me next, how am I to understand blessing God? I understand God blesses me, but how can I bless God? Bless the Lord, O my soul, the Bible says. How can I bless him with my life? Some of you might be like me and have some young children or have had at some point in their development. My children are seven, five, and four. And if I asked you if they ever gave you a Christmas present, you might say yes. Do you know that they're going to give it to you? Well, perhaps not. Who picks it out? Well, they do, with the help of their mother. <laughs> Who pays for it? You do. And that's exactly the point. You pay for the Christmas presents that your children give you. You're so glad that they plan for it. You're so glad that they have secrets with their mother about it. Children are wonderful when they're going to surprise their parents with presents, when they're excited to surprise their dad, when they giggle on Christmas morning, and they're so happy just to bless their father. It came from you, but it was a blessing because it had come as a boomerang of love. And so when we cry to God 
blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, when we repent and when we renew and when we love the Lord again with our heart and when we don't pursue after empty things, we bless you, O Lord, with what? With the blessing that he puts into our lives. Everything that we have comes from him. And how delighted are we to offer it back to him and to acknowledge before all of the world that there is nothing that we have or nothing that we could be or no king that we would rather serve than him. And remembering God's power will keep you from forgetting that provision. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful that you see your purposes through for your name's sake. That you call us back to yourself to renew again the relationship that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. For any here today who maybe are drifting spiritually. I pray for each one of them, God, that you indeed would allow them the great joy of renewing with you and the great benefit that comes from it. God, we pray that you would help us to remember your work and your ways and your power and your character that even when we feel dry or thirsty, that we would not forget your provision. We thank you that you keep us through the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.